Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Recapping Thursday night football and looking ahead to week 13. That's what we're talking about today on Stealing Bananas, brought to you by WinBet. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my Stealing Signals newsletter, as always, at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his great work over at Rotoviz. And Sean, week 13, right around the corner. We had a nice little conversation prior to this. Uh, to, to starting to record off the air about some of the really interesting running back spots. And I know any of our listeners that are still out there are probably thinking about the Jets backfield, the Niners backfield. We're going to get into all of that. Uh, our thoughts on where those teams are, where they might be headed. Some other really key decisions uh, the rest of the way. But one backfield that you can't act on for week 13 at least but was very interesting came on the Thursday night game where we saw the flip a little bit, maybe not, you know, an entire flip, obviously Devin Singletary still gets a short touchdown. He still gets, uh, you know, a lot of snaps, a lot of touches, but we've kind of been anticipating that James Cook might work in more. It hasn't been happening. Singletary has been playing 70% plus of the snaps every week, week after week after week. And still in signals. I've been writing a little bit like you would, Typically look at this and say this is a trend, but I'm kind of still waiting for the other shoe to drop on this. Six straight weeks, he had played at least 70% of the snaps. He falls to 44% here, which isn't really a knock on Singletary. The Bills obviously like him, but they were ready, I think, finally to turn James Cook loose a little bit. I mean, maybe it was a short week. Maybe that played a little bit into it, but Cook ends up playing just one fewer snap than Singletary, 44%, 43%. 33 snaps, 32 snaps, basically a 50-50 split. We also seen Naheem Hines in this game bump up to his largest offensive role by a lot, 31% of the offensive snaps. He's basically not been playing. I mean, his his high with Buffalo has been 15% of the snaps. He's all the way up at 31% in this game, plays on some passing downs. Very interesting. Uh, and Hines even got a carry down in the green zone. And, and they lost a little bit of yardage on that play. But very interesting game in terms of the Bills' backfield usage. It was. And it, it continues to be tricky, right? And you and I had discussed we have a team where we added him in the middle of the season. And we talked a little bit about how that was probably the time to do it. Although I, it is surprising that the season transpired in such a way that Cook was available midway through I really like both of these guys preseason. Singletary ends up on the zero RB candidates countdown list. He's had a good year for the reasons that we articulated. And yet one of the reasons that James Cook had some stretches where he moved ahead of Singletary in terms of ADP was for this, because you're anticipating that his biggest contributions would probably come in the highest leverage weeks of the fantasy season. It just would have been nice for Cook managers if you know, if they had signaled this a little bit more, but one of the things that has come up in Corbin Young's advanced running back stats article, one of the things that you and I have talked about is that when Cook has got a chance to touch the ball, he has looked electric. And so, I mean, he's really looked like the guy that they thought they were drafting. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Heinz acquisition, a little bit frustrating, even though, you know, I've encouraged people to think about that as no big deal. Him playing a lot of snaps in this game is kind of frustrating. Because I think if you are on Singletary or on Cook, or in many cases on both, a lot of our listeners are going to be on both of these guys. 
having Hines in there is, is not really the thing that you want. But this game demonstrated too, I think, why both guys were viable. And you could possibly even, I mean, you won't play them on the same team, but managers might be playing both of these guys going forward because of the split. And now we're seeing the Bills incorporate the running back in a way that works. We're getting some touchdowns for Singletary. That's nice. Obviously, one of the things that he has struggled with at times in this Bills offense is Josh Allen down around the goal line. So for him to be able to get this carry, have the one-yard touchdown, that's helpful for him. But Cook, I mean, again, he looks fantastic. This is a season high in points, in carries, in targets. You mentioned the snaps. It's really all the way across the board. And when you have someone in an explosive offense that's bringing what you know we pretty clearly think is a talent level, maybe not elite, but above average, definitely some playmaking ability, and then you're doing it in all facets, You've got to be really excited about him. And it's the easiest way, obviously, is if you just have him on best ball teams that are still in the mix. You've got to be just over the moon, really, with this performance. But in a variety of league styles and formats, yeah, you're excited about this now. And the next couple of games, it's nice for people who are playing in traditional leagues where the fantasy playoffs are 15, 16, 17, because you do get one more week now to look at this backfield. And not that it's going to stay the same, but if you see a continuation of this in week 14, then I think he can jump from your bench to your lineup for those really important fantasy playoff weeks. Yeah, and when we talk about the snap share, you were mentioning the targets. I mean, the big part of this, or a really big part of this, can come down to routes. And so you're talking about how Hines playing a little bit more, almost kind of a bummer um, that, that, that that all happened at the same time. When we look at the routes, Naheem Hines ran routes on 27% of dropbacks in this game. Again, clearly a, a season high for him with Buffalo. Um, Singletary was all the way down to 35%, not much higher than Hines, right? And then Cook was at 40.5%. So they were all kind of bunched together in terms of the routes. For Singletary, again, this stretch where he's been playing 70-plus percent of the routes, he's been running routes on basically two-thirds of the dropbacks every game. He was at 66% last week, 70% the week before he had a 56%, 67, 67, 68, going back. Bunch of these games in the high 60s. So he's all the way down to 35%. Basically gave up half of his routes as a percentage of dropbacks. One thing that comes to or, or stands out immediately with these routes numbers, they add up to more than 100%, which is you usually don't see it running back. You usually see the routes well below 100% because you have some pass blocking snaps. We have four pass blocking snaps here between the four of them. Hines had two. Each of the other two had one. They still add up to over 100%. That's because Hines played a little bit in the slot. Uh, and they were on the field together sometimes. So the Heinz role expansion, not necessarily completely infringing on the backfield snaps. I assume he was playing in some of the very obvious passing situations in the backfield. Um, and that is reflected by the pass blocks as well. And then, you know, playing in the slot sometimes when they just wanted to get him on the field, but also keeping a running back on. So not, I mean, it's a little bit infringing on the other two backs, not massive. The big note is obviously Cook now running more routes than Singletary when Singletary has been running two-thirds of the dropbacks running around on, on two-thirds um, basically every week for a long time here. That's what we thought the Cook draft pick was about. You know, go back to the J.D. McKissick signing, you know, song and dance. Um, thought they had a signing. He obviously goes back to Washington. And then they draft Cook, and it was, you know, he's going to play on these passing downs. They're going to throw underneath more. They have, and he was out there and and in this game. And he ends up getting the six targets, six catches, 41 yards. Singletary, two targets, no catches. Singletary, not a particularly good receiving back. I think both of his targets were catchable balls that he dropped, if I'm not mistaken. I know he had at least one. One was a really quick throw. Where, uh, Allen tried to swing it out to him really quick. wasn't really close. The other one, I think, was just a flat, bad drop, if I'm remembering the plays correctly. Cook, again, catches all his targets, and, and, and he looks explosive. I mean, Singletary, always a little bit underrated, but Cook looks – better to me to, to my eye right at this moment or in this game at least so very exciting uh for anyone who has cook and, and to be looking forward at the same time singletary i mean loses some value with this that he's not gonna be running a ton of routes and just ke- getting some catches by the manner of just being on the field and in, in the route as much as he has been uh but still has some value obviously still gonna get carries some of this and how far it fell for singletary again could have been short week stuff could have been that they were controlling this game pretty pretty easily although those guys were mixing in early so so very interesting usage there a couple little other interesting notes i mean isaiah mckenzie we talked a few weeks ago when he got up to like 
80% of the dropbacks that he ran around on, that that was sort of the preseason thesis. And finally, he's playing the whole slot role. He went way back down the next week and then back up again the following week. So that was weeks 10, 11, 12. He was up again in routes, very involved early in this game, got five targets, caught five passes. Not a huge pass volume game for the Bills. Obviously, they're they're leading throughout. But McKenzie continuing to look involved. Diggs has a big game, has a long touchdown called back, has a little bit of a drop on a third down play. That defender was kind of there, but would have liked to see another, you know, potential 25-yard catch there. The TD was what 40, 50 yards that got called back. So he could have had an even bigger game, has a nice game in the end. The Patriots side, a little bit more disappointing. We get, you know, Ramondre Stevenson catching a lot of passes in garbage time, which has been great. He's had this really consistent receiving role as well. It's been one of the big reasons he's been so comfortable to start over these last several weeks. Definitely, even when the offense is going bad, going to get you some receptions, going to play 80% of the snaps. Um, But, yeah, not a lot else on New England side that's any fun. Mac Jones did not look good. No, and and this is the Bills defense – bouncing back a little bit you have the note you know in the game in the broadcast a little bit interesting that the patriots went like 20 plus drives without forcing the bills to punt over obviously multiple games the bills really have their number right now there has been a change in the guard and yet when you look at buffalo you look at new england at six and six you think about what is ahead for both of these teams with the dolphins and jets playing so well it's going to be tricky for the Bills. I mean, this is the opposite of what the Patriots got to deal with during their dynasty, where a small part, I'm not definitely not trying to take credit away from Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, but a small part of what they did was to feast on a weak AFC East. You get, you know, a buy a lot of the time. Sometimes you get the number one seed. You have an easier path in the playoffs. The Chiefs right now really appear to be the beneficiaries of that type of schedule that type of division we'll see if that extends out into the future with young quarterbacks on a lot of these teams it could if jones develops i didn't think that he looked that bad in this game but he also didn't look good as you mentioned and it then you get a little bit of this chicken or the egg argument because as you mentioned the wide receiver is simply not involved when taekwon thornton more or less leads your receiving group and that's with a two for 31 game you know, that's problematic. On the other hand, it's kind of exciting to see him out there a little bit when he first came off of IR and was involved, had some touchdowns. They use him on some gimmick type of plays. You're thinking, okay, well, this is a, a speed demon who is going to be involved in ways that raise the floor. And then obviously the floor has disappeared for everybody in this receiving group. The target that he didn't catch is a deep target where he does get behind the defender, but kind of gets bumped, held what have you there's some road furniture there's some friction during that route mac jones probably overthrows him anyway but i think you can dream a little bit on that being something that factors in in the future but right now when you look at this the target's just just too spread you're not seeing anybody emerge you have five for myers four for parker three for Aguilar, two for born you know both of the tight ends are involved and they just don't have a playmaker to get the job done. And or Mac Jones isn't good enough to currently beat this Bills defense. I think when you have Ramondre Stevenson playing so well, and you can play off of him a little bit because he's a dual threat back. He's not a one-dimensional back. I think the future is still pretty bright for this Patriots team. But this is a, a big win and a very just sort of straightforward type of Thursday night performance from the Buffalo Bills. Then some elements that are not straightforward about this week however so much of the season has been this discussion of waivers isn't any good you don't have any chances to really remake your team or, or add pieces i don't know that we necessarily have that this week either but we at least have interesting questions you have a san francisco backfield that is in a little bit of flux with elijah mitchell going out and questions about christian mccaffrey you have the developments with the new york jets backfield and Zonovan Knight coming in, James Robinson inactive last week. Especially for managers who build their teams like we do, these are some cool questions because there might be some late season, I don't know, league winning, but definitely the type of upside that is playable help you, you know, maybe get across in your flex, but especially in that RB2 spot. If you built a powerful team otherwise, I like to see these opportunities late in the season. You and I discussed this a lot before the show. There's a ton to get into here. Yeah, I, I find myself with the San Francisco situation 
I don't want to say like disagreeing with the whole industry. I guess I'm hearing a lot about the other San Francisco backs being interesting. And I guess my biggest position this week, you know, from an analyst perspective, what I think is going to happen, what have you, how I'm reading the tea leaves that I think is interesting or notable is in San Francisco and surprise it's, you know, me being a lot more optimistic on Christian McCaffrey, which I kind of have been since the trade in terms of interpreting what, He's done what the perceived, you know, committee situation has meant or been about. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty optimistic about McCaffrey. Last week we get news that he has a little bit of a knee thing come on, come in during the game. It was really interesting and telling during the game that Elijah Mitchell was playing in the two minute drill of the end of the first half. The week prior, wrote about it in signals. McCaffrey had run routes on 90% of dropbacks. But what we were seeing, and we talked about this, McCaffrey was playing on the passing downs. For him to not be in on the two-minute drill and Mitchell to be in there seemed like something was wrong with McCaffrey. Then we got word that it was Mitchell who was hurt because he got hurt right after that and more clearly injured. And then in the second half, a little bit later, we find out that McCaffrey's sort of dealing with this knee thing, but will, you know, able to kind of play through it. I felt like from that point on, after Mitchell went out and maybe didn't get discussed enough, that they ended up using McCaffrey even more than they had. They had been a little bit more patient with him earlier. And it jives with sort of my whole read in the situation, which is that I think the split and all of that has been more about Elijah Mitchell than about limiting Christian McCaffrey. Elijah Mitchell, obviously their starter before he gets hurt, a good player, has been efficient since he came back. I think the Niners are just like, we have another good back and we want to keep Elijah Mitchell in the fold. And, on, and, and like, if that means that we are limiting McCaffrey a little bit, like that's fine. We have two really good backs. But the their actions with all of their other backs don't suggest that they're as optimistic about what they can bring to the team as Mitchell, most notably the McCaffrey trade. At that point in the season, they did have Jeff Wilson producing, and they end up trading Wilson a week later. They were down to, you know, Tevin Coleman, Tyrion Davis Price, some of those guys playing a little bit. But every point this season where it seemed like Jordan Mason, Tyrion Davis Price, one of these guys is going to step up, they haven't been comfortable really going to them for a decent amount. Tyrion Davis Price, I think, way back in like week two, got. I think his biggest role of the year, not very productive, two point something yards per carry. They've been hesitant to go back to him in that game um, where, or in that stretch where Tevin Coleman was, you know, had been signed off the street basically and, and brought in and was active. He was sort of playing a little bit more than, than TDP. And then you, you get to the point where they then acquire Christian McCaffrey and they bring him in and they end up letting Wilson go. I think in part, cause they know Mitchell's coming back. But all of those signals to me are like they just aren't really that high on TDP, on Jordan Mason, on those guys, on how much they can depend on them. McCaffrey's comments this week were that he kind of dodged a bullet and that he anticipates he'll be ready for a full workload this weekend. And I don't know that they'll push him, but it's a big game against Miami. It's a game that both teams want to win. There's been a little bit of talking this week. There's been some stuff from Miami's side about you know, the San Francisco running backs over there being excited. It's a fun game you mentioned to me before the show, like how, how it'll be so fun to, to watch these teams kind of try to be the better of this version of, of, of an offense, right? Because they're kind of running the same types of stuff. I don't know how much they'll push McCaffrey. I do think, you know, we talked a little bit about how he hasn't hit 70% of the snaps the last few weeks. I mean, this last game, he's banged up, but Mitchell goes out. He gets still to 63%, which is not far off at 66 and 65 the past two weeks in a game where he's banged up. I do think we're going to see him over 70% in this, maybe 75%. I don't know that we'll see him at 85%. I will say that if he's fine, health permitting, two, three weeks from now, he is going to be at 80%, 85%. I don't think the other guys are really going to factor in. I've been hearing when I say that I'm kind of disagreeing. I feel like I'm hearing a lot of talk about how there could be a league winner in the San Francisco backfield alongside McCaffrey in this other running back role, whether that's TDP or Mason or I mean, I, I kind of feel like Tevin Coleman's a guy that they might actually trust the most as a just a change of pace. And we might see sort of similar to, uh, you know, that stretch where Coleman played a little bit, where Coleman's kind of in the number two role and TDP's kind of in the number three role. Maybe if the game's out of hand, he'll get more work and that kind of stuff. Although Jordan Mason plays special teams, you had some interesting notes on that. So like how that works, how who's active is, is going to be a, a big question as well. But my biggest thing is like I don't I think McCaffrey's been in the 60% snap range because of Mitchell and who Mitchell is, not because of like wanting to limit McCaffrey for any specific reason. 
And now that Mitchell's out, I think there's too many people that are like, well, there's a lot of snaps available there. I think those are just going to mostly go to McCaffrey when when he's ready, assuming he can handle them health-wise. The other tiny little note here is that Debo Samuel banged up, and there is a little bit of overlap, despite the fact that we would love to see Debo have a little bit more of that downfield role. There's some overlap in how those two players are used. If Samuel is not playing 100% of the snaps either, you could get McCaffrey into more of those types of plays. You mentioned the special teams element for Jordan Mason. We have this difficult-to-determine backup situation so you have really two separate questions one is how much will McCaffrey play and is he healthy and then number two if there is anything left over or he just gets hurt completely and one of the things when you're seeing him over there on the sideline you know trying to to work through that knee it's just it's so hard not to be spooked based on what's happened the last couple of seasons and even the number of times he's been a little bit dinged up this year and so that factors into the psychology of how we approach it. And I think it probably has to factor into the psychology of how the 49ers approach it a little bit too. But you mentioned that last week, 44 snaps for McCaffrey, 15 for Mitchell, nine for Jordan Mason. The reason that Mason is there is because of the special teams. He's played double digit special team snaps at eight consecutive games where he was active. That includes four games where he didn't log a single offensive snap. So now we know Mitchell is out. And the last time that Mitchell wasn't available and Christian McCaffrey couldn't be counted on for a full complement. So the first game that he is there after the trade, Tyrion Davis-Price was up that game, plays 13 offensive snaps. Jeff Wilson was still on the team at that time and played significantly. He obviously not in the mix, but as you mentioned, Tevin Coleman has been rumored to be a guy that maybe they feel more comfortable with and would like in the receiving role ahead of some of the rookies. I just don't think there's enough information here to make a strong claim about which direction it could go. But that's also fun from a fantasy perspective because it really offers three separate guys who might not be rostered in your league, all of whom bring a little bit different element to the table and all of whom could hit, right? And there there are some possibilities here. Now, I I agree with you in that McCaffrey now I guess the main thing I would say is I I think that regardless of who you have, you can add Christian McCaffrey, who is basically a wide receiver, who is also one of the top five pure rushers in the NFL. Then you have to do that. I think that despite how significant the trade conversation was, it still pales in comparison to what he can bring. And I think that's also reflected in the fact they're still playing Mitchell. It's like they love Mitchell and yet you've got to go out and get this guy And then especially now, and this is sort of where it wraps back into that Miami Dolphins game, because this is a huge game for the two teams. Obviously, the Dolphins fighting for a potential number one seed in the AFC. The teams who have to play an extra game in the AFC, just your path to the Super Bowl and what's going to be a brutal kind of final four there. You know, your path narrows considerably if you got to play extra games. On the 49ers side, they still have this possibility of emerging as maybe not the number one seed, but the best team in the NFC. If you go out and get hammered by the dolphins, and I think there's a possibility that the dolphins are playing that well. The dolphins also have been very much in Tua's corner all year. He doesn't necessarily want to make a big deal about himself, but his teammates love him. And the first thing that you think when you see all of that, especially in the off season is okay, well, these are good teammates because you want people on your side who are going to say those things about you and feel that way about you. Now that he's gone out and demonstrated, like, well, not only are they good teammates, but they were right. And so the fact that the Dolphins, they're going up against this 49ers defense that just shut out the Saints. And that's kind of the other part of it, is that as the 49ers are trying to figure out how to deploy the running backs, if you're facing an opponent that, I mean, you feel like you could probably play another five or six games. (laughs) And how many points do the Saints score? A couple field goals? I mean, when you're dominating that completely. Maybe you're going to be a little bit more conservative. You're going to be in a shoot. I strongly believe it's going to be a shootout game. Maybe that's just what I would like to believe. We had a couple games in the seventies last week, and that was a lot of fun. I think to keep up with this Dolphins team that has Hill and has Waddle has these two former 49ers backs who are very motivated to go out and show that maybe they were the guys who should have been counted on. You're going to need to score some points. And I, mean, I think it's a huge game from that perspective. The loser of this game then has even a lot more to prove than the winner. You're going to have a lot more pressure on you 
the rest of the season. I mean, number one, you want to be the guy who can say after the game, you know, we're the best version of this. But then number two, you don't want to have that pressure to then have to rectify the situation and prove people wrong for the entire rest of the season. You just want to be able to go out and play. And the psychology of sports, the psychology of humans, the psychology of competitiveness in these types of situations. We know that one of the reasons that the NFL teams had been run heavy when it didn't make sense, you know, through decades was it was more macho to run. I mean, there's a lot on the line here from a pride perspective. When Kyle Shanahan is putting this game plan together, if you have Christian McCaffrey and he can play snaps, he better be out there because that's their path to winning this game. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Absolutely. And I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I don't think McCaffrey is going to get a huge rushing workload. I think the ways that they have limited that make enough sense. And because he's a little bit banged up, we probably should expect someone else to get some carries. But I like the way you put it. That, like, we just don't know. And, I'm, and I, I think that's sort of the the case that is being made for why to add Taron Davis price or why to add these guys. But, you know, for anyone listening to this on Saturday, when it releases, you're kind of just thinking about who do I stash my last roster spot? I'm basically making a case that we should like, rather than looking at the roles and the team, we should be looking at the players individually and what the team has told us about the various players. I, you know, I, I think when you look at Christian McCaffrey, what the team has told us has been mostly all positive. They've been using him in high leverage situations, using him as a receiver, in ways that like I would be way more concerned if his snap share was down and he was rushing and not running as many routes. He's been running so many routes when healthy that I feel great about the ways that they've mostly, mostly great about the ways that they've used him. Look at Elijah Mitchell, how well he's played and the fact that he was the starter before he got hurt and all this stuff about not losing your job when, you know, you're injured. And obviously they like the player. And so they give him an opportunity to, to really build off how he's been, you know, performing and over the, you know, start of his career and he continues to, to succeed and, and over these last couple of weeks until he gets hurt again. Then you look at Tyrion Davis price. You mentioned uh, the chiefs game, which was McCaffrey's first game, not ready for a call, full complement of snaps. Kevin Coleman was also up in that game. Interestingly, they had four backs up Jeff Wilson there. Tyrion Davis price played 13 snaps in that game. I was just looking at the box score. He got a couple carries in the first quarter, but he got two targets on the last drive of the game. When Brock Purdy was in a quarterback, that was a blowout loss. Both teams ended up putting in their backup quarterbacks. I think Tyrion Davis price sort of played out the string of that game. He was out there. I mean, like I said, he gets the two targets. He was, I'm not going to go back and, you know, be able, especially while we're recording, be able to, to confirm this, but there's like nine, nine snaps there that Brock Purdy plays. I, I bet of the 13 snaps that Tyrion Davis price played, the vast majority of them came on that, that final drive with a backup quarterback in, which makes sense relative to Tevin Coleman who was up in that game. Jeff Wilson was sort of the number two alongside CMC. The week prior to that, I kind of want to mention again, as I continue to talk about Tyrion Davis-Price, he was up in week six. He only put one snap. That's the game where Tevin Coleman played substantially ahead of him before the CMC trade. Elijah Mitchell still out. Jeff Wilson, the number one. Coleman, the two. Tyrion Davis-Price plays one snap. And then the, you know, the week later, week seven, McCaffrey was in there. They were both up, and Tyrion Davis-Price played ahead of Coleman. It's almost like he had passed him in that back backup pecking order, but that's why I'm emphasizing he a lot of what he played in that game was actually garbage time with the backup quarterback. I'm not sure there's really anything in Tyrion Davis-Price's season, including the McCaffrey trade, that suggests that they have any faith that when he was healthy and ready to go that they could lean on him and use him a lot. It wouldn't surprise me if he does get some early rushes right in the Elijah Mitchell role, 
to spell McCaffrey some and all of those things. But I, just, I don't know where this goes very positively for TDP based on everything the team has told us over the next several weeks. And then, as you said, being a very competitive game, needing to have your best guys out there. I mean, that, the case I was just making with TDP's usage is that Coleman could still be ahead of him, basically, in, in this game here in week 13, even though TDP kind of went ahead of him in week seven after being behind him in week six and, and all of that. Okay, reading tea leaves, not being real clear, but I just don't see a lot of optimism looking at the ways that TDP has been used other than way back in week two and he wasn't very good. He's only been up for three games. He's been hurt a lot, but like they just don't seem in the off-field stuff, the trade, they don't seem to trust him to be a guy they can lean on. I don't see a lot of optimism as a reason to stash. When you got to make those decisions, who's that last guy on my roster I want to hold this week to get new information on? You know, I, you, you mentioned to me kind of jokingly off the air, would it surprise us if Ronald Jones has another huge game? I would way rather still be holding Ronald Jones than TDP this week, even though there's uncertainty in the Niners' backfield. I just don't feel like there's a lot of reason to believe that the Niners are going to give TDP that type of workload or that he's ready for it or anything in the next couple of weeks. Don't really think there's a huge reason to go out and get Coleman or anything either. You could stash Coleman, but it, it does seem to me like McCaffrey. I mean, you would need a McCaffrey injury basically to start really changing things in this backfield. But um, it's, it seems like it's gotta be McCaffrey. They don't really trust anyone else. So anyway, I, I would, one of the things I, that we talk about a lot is that you, as you're doing this and as you're building your bench, you want to be kind of understanding scenarios and pricing different scenarios. And the thing that really jumps out with how, as you discuss that is that number one, you don't have an Elijah Mitchell now. And so it should be Christian McCaffrey for a heavier piece, but the backup snaps are more likely to also be split than they were with Mitchell. And then in the case of a McCaffrey injury, they're more likely to be split in a way that doesn't allow you to score how you need. So it's a different situation than the one that we've been talking about for so long with Samaj P. Ryan, which could have very easily never come to fruition. It's easy to illustrate it now and to kind of verify what we were talking about because we did see it. But one of the things that you have to be willing to do is to make these bets before you've seen it. And one of the guys who the bet is made on constantly is Alexander Madison, but it's more expensive once you've seen it in the past. you got to be willing to make it on guys where you haven't so then we have a great offer today with WinBet. Bet 100, win 100, special. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. I think it's never a bad time to mention stealing lines as well when we talk about starting winning. Ben, the WinBet play of the week. It's got to be Zon of a Night. Yeah. That's, in, uh, I mean, a really exciting backfield. That's one where... I understand the excitement for Zon of the Night. I mean, you look at a guy who played really well last week when he got an opportunity. And, I, I, you know, Sean, we talk about how running back talent, I mean, you and I believe is is undervalued by the market. The market believes that it's often over-discussed and yet or, or over-emphasized a lot of different types of running backs can be successful. We're too certain about these things. And probably in the case of like a TDP in such a small sample, you know, saying that he hasn't performed well is not necessarily fair. But there are reasons to believe that when a guy looks like Zonovan Knight did, that you're like, they're going to want to continue to ride this. And I don't think it's a big surprise. Michael Carter's injury was said to be a low ankle injury. I think maybe they could have pushed him. We don't know how serious these things are, but I don't think it's much of a surprise that we find out, I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday, but pretty early in the week, he's now doubtful. They're going to sit him out. I think part of that is, look, we have, and they're not just saying he's out. He's not hurt, hurt. They're saying he's doubtful. Like we don't need him up. I think part of that is we have a guy who really flashed last week that we want to see play a little bit more, right? Um, and I was look digging into the first half, second half stuff because Carter got hurt in the first drive of the third quarter this week. And so you look in the, the rest of the second half, Zonovan Knight gets 10 carries the rest of the way. He was playing in the first half as well, had four in the first half, but 10 carries the rest of the way. Ty Johnson had five. Uh, Johnson, you know, veteran kind of a passing down back, ran a decent number of routes, but Knight was right there. They basically ran the same number of routes. They both had one catch in the first half. Knight actually had two more catches in the second half. Ty Johnson didn't have any catches in the second half of that game. So Knight really sort of took over the lead role the rest of the way and was running some routes as well. It was kind of the Brees Hallish role 
where Ty Johnson was sort of in the Michael Carter passing down lesser role from what, you know, the split we saw early in the year before Brees Hall got hurt. Knight being the lead runner, bulk runner, and getting, you know, routes on on early downs and it but that's like that's a key note that if he's gonna at least get like half of the routes where ty johnson's only playing on obvious passing downs because mike white we know throws a ton to the running backs right and so knight ends up he does end up catching the three passes in this game he runs for nearly five yards a carry he looks good and you know james robinson is the one little fly in the ointment kind of like the tevin coleman situation in the 49ers he was a healthy scratch last week they obviously traded for him. They're going to have him up if Michael Carter's out. How much he might play or how much of an opportunity he might get will be really interesting to see. But I do think they kind of signaled, and this was Knight's first game active, and this was the first time they made James Robinson a healthy scratch. They kind of signaled, we want to see what we have at night, and we kind of know that we don't have a lot here with Robinson. It was a cheap trade midseason. There's also uh, elements to, to Robinson's trade that, I believe if he plays a certain amount or, or gains a certain amount of yardage, the compensation gets more expensive. On the other side, you get the conditional stuff going on. He hasn't been helping them. And they're trying to win. The Jets are in playoff position right now. So I, you look at this and you go, Zonovan Knight, they were excited enough about him to make him active last week. He performs well. Michael Carter is going to be out. They haven't been given Ty Johnson tons of work. He's going to run routes. He's going to play. He might even be like a really deep league, low key PPR option because of Mike White's tendencies to throw the backs. But Knight, I mean, you got to be feeling really good about 12 to 15 carries plus a couple receptions with the Mike White role. It's sort of as a floor. And then there's, I think, still ceiling above that if he is can be explosive, if he can be efficient like he was in this game. I mean, he could be a really nice play this week. I think so too. And this was probably the most fun game slash situation to write about in the zero RB playbook all season. The thesis so clear and the notes just, I mean, so many fun little pieces to this. I claim that there are four positive things here that happen simultaneously. You mentioned James Robinson is inactive. Carter had actually played 54% of the snaps when Brees Hall was healthy, but only 51% of the snaps from weeks eight to 11. His role had actually been diminishing even in the absence of Hall. And then obviously he gets hurt in this particular game, the second element then, Cardi getting injured. The third, that Mike White changes the dynamic of this Jets offense, right? They didn't run a play inside the Chicago five-yard line last week, but they still scored four touchdowns, three of them from beyond 20 yards. Obviously, if you don't run a play inside the five, you're not getting goal line carries, but Knight got the lone carry inside the 10. You know, you would kind of think that he's going to be the goal line back, although if Robinson is active. It might be kind of this weird thing where Carter being out actually hurts night a little bit but the fourth thing and the biggest development was just that he played well and i thought it was kind of cool the coach's notes i mean we don't do a lot of just reading out what people are saying but this one is just kind of so fun he says i think everyone saw bam had some fresh legs he was juicy as a runner getting north and south he gets north and south quick he's a one cut runner which is kind of the staple of our scheme he played fast he played physical a lot of effort to gain yards after contact the thing for bam is not to compare everyone's got their own unique running style been something you just mentioned while being just getting north and south quick, their NFL runs where the old line blocks it for two yards, but you grind for four. So that quote is, is fun. It's enthusiastic. You like to hear that. But it's also kind of interesting because it does reflect what actually happened. And so much of the time you get enthusiastic coaches' notes where then you go and look at the stats and you're like, well, I mean, you could see how they thought that and how it maybe reflects things that don't show up in the stats. But Night last week, he's one of five backs to carry 10 plus times and average at least 2.9 yards before contact. So that's the one cut getting north-south quickly element. And then he was also credited with a 28% broken tackle rate. David Montgomery, the only other back with at least 10 carries to, tw- to crest 20%. That's the after tackle part. I mean, it's this tiny sample in his first game, but he played well. And... If you're going to be active and the team's going to go to you and you have a chance to be a starter and you actually seize that so completely in your first chance, that's where, you know, we start to get these huge kind of league winning runs to end seasons. When you get a chance, if you take it so completely like Knight did, that could launch your entire career. Yeah. And we want to talk about career. We want to talk about long view stuff with these players. This guy's 21 years old. I mean, he's a guy who was a three-year player at NC State. 
and then went pro, didn't get drafted, but now has already made his, his way onto a team and into some playing time. So you're, you're already beyond sort of the draft capital thing, not entirely, but to some degree. When you look at him as a prospect or as a player, like we, we love 21-year-old running backs. We love the ones that are young, that are good enough to get to this stage at, at the NFL level to be able to, to declare early. Maybe it was a mistake for him to declare early because he didn't actually get drafted. But to be able to declare early, latch onto a team and be, uh, or, you know, whatever, get drafted or latch on and be able to be producing at the NFL level at this age says something about what you did already in college. He, as a true freshman, 136 attempts, 745 rushing yards um, in back in 2019, very young, right? 2020, 2021, basically identical lines all three years, right in this 140 attempt range, 750 rush attempt range. Caught 20 passes both of his final two years at NC State. But again, did all this very young in his three years in college, then goes pro. This is These aren't like great college numbers or great production or anything, but the fact that he was able to take work from his true freshman season on and and have you know close to 150 touches each year in college or the last two years with the 20 catches, more like 160 touches, 170 touches. I mean – it looks like the kind of guy that if you're going to talk about a UDFA that kind of slipped through the cracks and the reasons that he wasn't drafted, maybe because he wasn't that, I mean, as far as UDFA goes, obviously it was really splashy in his three years at NC state. Then he probably would have been drafted as a 21 year old. But as far as UDFAs go, this is what I want to see where I'm like, Hey, you know, maybe this guy was better than, than NFL thought. They just didn't know yet. Maybe he declared a little early, but he's still so young. He's got time to develop. There's a lot of reason to look at that and be like, and then and then last week when he got onto an NFL field, I mean the Bears are not an NFL defense, but he looked good. <laughs> so all those stats you just mentioned, from a longer view too, like I feel like it's important context. This is not some 24 year old, 23 year old rookie or somebody who was undrafted a, a season ago or two seasons ago and has been on practice squads for a couple of years and now is getting his opportunity. This guy's 21 right now. I mean this could be a player who's an NFL player in a couple of years as he develops. Yeah, very exciting, especially those 41 passes that you mentioned that he caught over the last two years. You place that within the context of what this Jets offense might be. And then you look at the matchup this week where could be a shootout with the Vikings. The Jets defense has been very good, but if they can get Justin Jefferson going, if Dalvin Cook can play a little bit better, you know, they could be trailing. Then you get a lot of those checkdowns to the back. This is a Vikings defense that over the last three weeks has been shredded by Devin Singletary, Tony Pollard, or Andre Stevenson. Now, I mean, it's a huge stretch to compare Knight to Pollard or Stevenson, the two guys that really lit them up. But when you're looking for big games, you can do a lot worse than targeting this specific opportunity this week. Yeah, again, like we're, we're coming from at this from a from an angle where these running back decisions are always uncertain. We don't claim to know what's going to happen. A lot of times you're going to be wrong. You're making bets on what you think is maybe most likely to happen, knowing that that's not very something you can be very, very confident in. And also what maybe the impact can be when we're reading the tea leaves on players like Zonovan Knight and Tyrion Davis price. I mean, again, like everything we just said and, and what you just said that the tea leaves for Zonovan Knight are, are like, everything's tr trending in a very positive direction. And like you said, for this week, I mean, we're excited to potentially use him, in a, in a must-win game in, in a main event because it wouldn't be that surprising to see him rip off 15, 20 points in this game. So that, that's exciting. Sean, I know you are really excited as well about the Chiefs, your Chiefs facing the Bengals, trying to see if they can actually beat the Bengals, <laughs> the one team that kind of has their number a little bit in recent seasons, obviously last year in the playoffs. Huge, huge Bengals victory to, to move to the, to the Super Bowl. And they had also beat them in the regular season last year as well, right? And so you have a little bit of a rivalry developing here now early in Joe Burrow's career. He's gone up against Patrick Mahomes and been able to beat him a couple of times. I'm sure the Chiefs are very aware of this and remember this. I feel like the Chiefs are going to be really on point in this one. It's in Cincinnati. It'll be a very fun game. It will be a fun game. And one of the things we've been looking for this season is more excitement, right? The fact that this could be a rivalry there was almost this letdown in the first month to six games where the Bengals are so terrible and you're really thinking to yourself 
the Chiefs and the Bills blew a huge also not that it really relates to last year because the Rams came through a difficult NFC then they beat the Bengals in the Super Bowl very justified Super Bowl champions but you look at what they've done this season and it just feels like the Chiefs and Bills blew a massive shot to have that Super Bowl championship on their resume by number one the Bills losing to the Chiefs and then the Chiefs obviously losing to the Bengals but now the Bengals have really I wouldn't say come roaring back but they look again like a Super Bowl contender the way that Joe Burrow was able to carry them in the absence of Jamar Chase, you could even argue in the absence of Joe Mixon, has been impressive. We know that they have one of these defenses. It's not exactly a playmaking defense, but it's a difficult defense to score big numbers on. And so if you've got Joe Burrow and your defense doesn't get uh, lit up very often, you're going to be in the mix. You know that the Chiefs have spent the offseason and then have kind of, as a sidelight, spent the last month building a game plan for this game the question i would have is who's going to make better adjustments in game and after the chiefs get off to a hot start which i really do think they'll do what do they do in the second half because they let the Bengals up in the first half of both of those games last year and then they choked them both especially that second game you look at and they go five possessions to start the second half where they don't score or have a drive over five plays and this is, you know, in the context of two different games where in the first one, Mahomes throws for 259 and two. In the second one, he throws for 275 and three. The first game, Kelsey and Hill actually get shut down, only go for 65 total yards. That's one of the best games you're going to see a defense ever play against the Chiefs and those two specific weapons. In the second game that they blow, the AFC Championship game, those guys combine for 21 targets, 173 yards. They both get in the end zone, and yet the Chiefs still go through this very long dry spell. What are your thoughts here on how this game could develop when we know that the two players who have really defined 2022 in fantasy, not the only two, but two of the very most important have been Travis Kelsey with the massive numbers he's putting up. And then Patrick Mahomes, you look through the different playoff contenders in a format like the FFPC, for example, you're going to see a lot of big quarterback scores. Not all of them came early in drafts, but a lot of big quarterback scores. Mahomes is very hot, averaging over 30 points per game in his last eight. The Bengals are hot defensively, you could argue. They're only giving up 17 points per game in their last five. But this is a different matchup. Their last five opponents... Marcus Mariota, Jacoby Brissett, Baker Mayfield, Kenny Pickett, Ryan Tannehill, a whole different world playing Patrick Mahomes. It is. The big thing for me with the Bengals has been the offensive line. We've talked about it a lot this year, Sean. Early in the year, they needed to go run heavy or they decided they needed to because Burrow was getting hit so much. And we talked a little bit. I don't know if we talked about on the show or kind of off the air trying to figure out what the issue was there. Because you talk about the Bengals sort of two-year – path and last year they looked like the team that wasn't they were maybe a year early is really what it felt like they, they didn't really have any business coming out of the AFC last year necessarily they were still in the rookie QB window they're going to be able to improve it's one of the reasons why after their Super Bowl run they had like 13th best Super Bowl odds for this year coming in we usually see the two Super Bowl teams be right up there in the top five they were well down in part because the is so strong but I really like them. You know, we joked about the Omni fantasy stuff. I liked them in, in some of these, you know, formats where I was getting exposure to, to futures bets. Cause you were looking at the Bengals as a team that, yes, overachieved last year, but we're also rookie QB window and looking at the potential to improve. And the ways they tried to improve this offseason were to address the offensive line. They brought in a ton of big name players. And so one of the things we were talking about this year was weird that Burrow was still under this much pressure because they were actually supposed to be better in that area. But we do know that sometimes offensive lines, when you have a whole bunch of new pieces, need time to gel. The important thing was they brought in players that had the ability to play at a high level. I went back when you and I were talking. Again, I'm pretty sure this was off the air, but I remember looking up some articles from back at the time, some of the places that are going to look at offensive line ability. And they were getting praised for all of these offseason moves. They've addressed this, and they've addressed it with good players, with good contracts, the right ways that they should go, go about it. From most everything I could see from back in the offseason, trying to look back in season, why is this going so wrong? So anyway, Burrow, seven sacks week one, six sacks weeks two. They go a little more run heavy, but still multiple sacks in 
one, two, three, four, five of his next six games culminating in a five-sack game against Cleveland. And that's the last time I think you and I talked about it on the air. That was a Thursday night game we recapped, and, and the Browns just completely destroyed their offensive line. I mean, that, they were just wrecking. There was such a, a push and pull between Burrow having no time at all and Jacoby Brissett on the other side being able to sit back there and pick apart the Bengals' secondary. Since that game, they had a week nine game against Carolina, a bye, and then weeks 11 and 12 at Pittsburgh and at Tennessee. Pittsburgh with TJ Watt back, probably playing up relative to their full season numbers. Tennessee, great defensive line. I mean, they're, they're, they're like the best run team in the league, but they can get after the pass too. A lot of talent up front in Tennessee. Burrow's been sacked four times in those three games. And I was just digging around with the PFF grades and things. I mean, their, their line is grading better right now as well cross your fingers for Burrow's sake and for football's sake and for the Bengals passing game's sake, but maybe this offensive line is gelling finally that offseason upside that upside that we saw and their ways that they addressed it. Again, talk about the rookie QB window. That typically means you have a lot of cap space and the Bengals did going into the offseason. That's why I say last year they felt like they were maybe a year early and then they have the opportunity to address things, which when you when you have the rookie QB contract, you can do. And they, they went towards the offensive line and still have the skill position talent but this offense looks like it's really chugging. They haven't had Chase either, obviously, these last couple of weeks. He should be back. Now you're talking about being at full bore with your skill position, and the line might be playing up to its ability finally. And that could be a really dangerous offense. You mentioned the defense has been playing well as well. It'll be interesting to see if they can hold up. Probably not against Kansas City. But, I mean, I think the bigger question is, can their offense be so good that it's elite, that it's it's right there with the Bengals and – I mean, excuse me, with the Bills and the Chiefs and can get into these AFC shootouts, you know, as we're, we're going to see here, hopefully. And then, and then in the postseason, I think we're potentially in line for some, some really great offensive play. I think the Bengals might be able to be at that level now if their offensive line can hold up. It would be really fun to see. I mean, obviously, anyone who listens to the show knows what a huge Chiefs fan I am. But I want to see great matchups, not just now, but for the next decade. And if the Bengals can take that next little step, I think that you're going to have – three all-time great teams facing off against each other for a decade. If you're playing Travis Kelsey this week and you're terrified of what he's been doing to teams, there's at least a chance that the Bengals slow him down. He's number 27 among tight ends in the passing matchup Raider over at Rotoviz. That doesn't mean he's going to finish 27th in points. It means it's a difficult matchup that he will probably beat like he always does. But it is at least a difficult matchup for you. That helps. You look at it from the Bengals' side and what they're trying to do offensively in the passing game. I just think it's so cool that so much of what you just talked about and how they're emerging from a blocking perspective occurs without Jamar Chase. We talked in the preview show, I believe, about how he is one of seven wide receivers averaging 20-plus points per game. Obviously, a little bit easier to do in a seven-game sample than in 11 games like so many of the guys have played. But he's over 10 targets per game. He's got that kind of intermediate target depth. You might even like to see him be targeted a little bit deeper down the field. But 95 air yards a game. He's fourth in the NFL in yards after the catch per game, trailing only guys like Cup, Jefferson, and Debo Samuel. And so one of the things, and, and but I think it's an emphasis for the two of us when we're looking at these players and, and what we want to see when we're talking about an A.J. Brown, we're talking about a Stephon Diggs. Jamar Chase, another one of those guys where it's really hard to contain him because he does everything well. He can beat you deep. He can catch short passes and then beat you with the run after the catch. Because of that, and no one's questioning any of that. It just it can always be worthwhile to remind yourself of just how good he is and the number of different things that he does well, the volume that he's likely to see even with T. Higgins being there, because it is going to be tough for the Chiefs to contain him if he's anything close to full speed. Everyone knows that he went off for 11, 266, and 3 in the first matchup. The Chiefs were able to limit the other guys, but I mean, it doesn't matter when you give up that many to just the one player. They come back in the playoff game and the Chiefs actually do hold him down. He gets in the end zone, but it only goes for six for 54. But T. Higgins goes over 100 in that one. And then we have this back and forth, right? Where the Chiefs go out in the offseason and their plan is built to try and stop the Buffalo Bills and to try and stop this 
I mean, we'd like to say three wide receiver juggernaut, but unfortunately Tyler Boyd has been, I, I guess there's really no other way to say it other than a massive disappointment. This is really T Higgins and Jamar Chase, this, you know, this two headed monster. They trade up to take a defensive back, which I didn't care for. They draft George Karlaftis being able to do multiple things there, make it after the quarterback a little bit. We'll see how that pans out over the long term. I wanted them to take Brees Hall. And that looks like a better call now since Brees Hall looks like he might be a generational back. Obviously, that's going to surprise people who know us mostly for, or know me mostly for zero RB. And a lot of our listeners know about all the great information out there about how running backs are really not the driver of, of reality scoring. Regardless, they took those defensive guys. They have a defense that is never going to look great, I don't think, in the pure numbers because you've got to try and outscore Patrick Mahomes. And so teams are going to face them differently than they face basically anybody else. But this is a battle between two of the very best teams. And I think rising teams too. I mean, these are not fully developed mature teams that like, this is their window. These are both rising squads in different ways, but teams that, you know, are, are built to, to hopefully win this year, but win for a long time. So each of these matchups then, develops this narrative that you talked about. Yeah. And you talked about Chase's health. I, I'm pretty encouraged, I guess. Um, just because he, I think he was close last week and I, it, it, I mean, it sounded like he was very close. It sounds a little bit to me, like they were almost holding him back for this chief's match matchup to, to make sure he was ready to go. He's only gotten in limited practices on Wednesday and Thursday. We're recording Friday morning. So I haven't seen the Friday report, but. I do think he's further along than that suggests. Um, you know, got in a little bit of practice time last week, limited practices all week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, last week. And so, you know, you, you don't ever really know, but again, reading tea leaves and all those things, it, it's, you know, he was all DNPs in week 11 and then was out. And then last week, limited practices all week. I think questionable eventually ruled out this week, limited practices again. I feel like we're at the point where, you know, two weeks into at least getting some limited work on the field, he's probably further along than, it, than some guys are on their first game back. So excited to see if we can get him playing because you're right. I mean, Tyler Boyd, I mean, I've had a hard time explaining that when I've been writing up stealing signals every single week. But I felt like when Chase went down, Boyd was going to step up a little bit. He was playing pretty well as the third guy. Maybe, you know, less defensive attention or whatever. But had a couple big plays early this year, a couple long touchdowns. Chase goes out. I Tyler Boyd's played good football most of his career. He's not old yet. Um, was, you know, 21-year-old when he came in. He's been around for a long time. But I think he's like 28 right now. Would have thought he would have stepped up in a lot bigger way over these last few weeks. Has really disappeared and, and disappointed. Like you said, there's no other way to say that. But it gets back to, you know, you, if you have Chase and Higgins on the field, if they're both healthy, that's enough. I mean, those two guys are so good. It really is. We talk about not wanting to have just two options in the passing game, but I mean, what what they've had to do, the Bengals, the last few weeks with Boyd not stepping up is be Higgins and then the ancillary pieces being uh, the tight end and the, and the running back. So a little bit of extra work for Hayden Hurst at times. The running backs have done a lot. Obviously, Samaje Piran a couple weeks ago has a three TD game. Caught, you know, got seven targets, caught four balls last week. Mixon was catching a lot of passes in, a, in his five touchdown game, you know, a couple weeks back. They've had to incorporate the running back and tight end. So if you have Chase and Higgins, you can incorporate other pieces one way or another. Maybe it helps Boyd a little bit, but it'll help the other pieces. They have enough depth of options that it's not just those two, but it really does come down to can those two be the transcendent players? They really, they really can be and are. This is going to be such a fun game. It is. It should be a great game. It should be a great week. We're looking to see about some of the the banged up players a little bit like Travis Etienne does he come back and light up the Detroit Lions but as we head into the fantasy playoffs then the run into the fantasy playoffs in many formats the fantasy playoffs for FFPC sort of the stretch run for a lot of these best ball leagues you're really watching the scoreboard now maybe more closely in underdog or in FFPC than you were previously because you've got to get your team in before it can win the million dollars that type of thing these two weeks, very, very exciting. I can't wait to see what happens. That'll do it for today's episode of Stealing Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel. With me, as always, is Ben Gretsch. You can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Subscribe to Stealing Signals. 
subscribe to Stealing Lines, join us over there at Rotoviz. Man, it's been so much fun talking with you. I guess I'm I'm just fired up for the end of the fantasy season. If you're fired up with us, you can always leave us a rating and review. You can sign up to the feed. Any of those things will help us with the algorithm. But the main thing we want to say is good luck this week. We're rooting for you. And we'll be back again for week 14. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.